0: Our passage this morning is from John 12, and as you're turning to the passage, um, just a quick summary of where we are in the book of John. Since I have not been preaching through this book, Um, what we have here is what what really is the end of the public ministry of Christ, um, and we're at a something of a high water mark in. Jesus' popularity with the people of Israel. This is just after the resurrection, or the the raising of Lazarus, and the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem. And um, right before our passage, Jesus is addressing the crowd that is gathered around him, and he starts to tell them about. Uh, the need for the Son of Man to be lifted up, to be raised up. And unlike a previous time in the book of John, back in chapter 8, the people are starting to understand what he means. They start to realize that he's saying that he must die. And they start to question, how is it that the Messiah is not supposed to die, the Messiah is supposed to reign? And so then... Our passage this morning is something of a comment on this, explaining what's going on both with the people and with Christ at this moment. So I'll begin at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn and inwardly digest them. That through the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I often wonder, and I imagine many of you do as well, how it was that after the Exodus, the people of Israel became so quickly faithless that just as, almost just as soon as they had crossed over the Red Sea, they were setting up the golden calf. They had just crossed through the Red Sea. They had seen the plagues and signs that God had performed through Moses in Egypt against the Egyptians. They had followed a pillar of fire to where they were now were. And they had even heard God's voice from atop Mount Sinai. Yet almost immediately, again, they turned to idol worship. They refused to circumcise their children, complained, held on to idols, rebelled. They did practically everything that you could think of against the commandments of God. It seems like sheer insanity, doesn't it? How could any rational person behave in this way in light of everything that they had seen God do? The life and ministry of Jesus reveals a similarly difficult question. In a way, very much like Moses, Christ had performed many signs and wonders. He had made all sorts of demonstrations to the people that he and his ministry were both fulfillments of the Old Testament. Yet, practically everyone who saw him refused to believe in him. And those who did believe only believed superficially. This sort of pro- problem is common throughout Scripture. Scripture. And we see it especially in our text today. Our Lord had performed many miracles and did all sorts of wondrous things that we might think would be enough to convince anyone, yet it didn't. What is it that keeps people from coming to Christ in faith, even when all the best evidence points in that direction? So what we'll see today is many different reasons for why people reject Christ. We'll see especially worldliness, pride, and most of all, a desire for their own glory instead of the glory of God. There are two sorts of glories that we see in this passage. One is the glory of suffering, and the other is the glory of triumph. One is the glory of death that leads to everlasting life, and the other is a glory of life that leads to death and hell. It's a contrast between what natural man desires and the supernatural work of God. God's glory costs us dearly, while the glory of man tells us to keep all that we want, all that we possess. This is the basic choice that John is setting before us, and it's one we'll consider here together this morning, under two points. First, we will consider what sort of glory it is that comes from man, what sort of temptations it offers. To do this, we'll start at the beginning. uh, We'll actually start at the end of our text, looking at verses 42 and 43. Then we'll consider what John means by the glory which comes from God. And look at the rest of our text. So John says in verse 42 that even many of the authorities believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory of God which comes from God. So what sort of faith is this? I think that's the first question we have to ask. What sort of faith is it that refuses to confess what it believes? What sort of faith does John have in mind that is unable to stand up to even the smallest amount of social pressure? We get some hints of this in the gospel and other passages about what sort of faith these people had and what sort of hope they had for Jesus. And it wasn't Hope for salvation for instance if we turn back to John 6 and consider the feeding of the 5,000 we see that the people only accepted Jesus when they thought that they could make him into a political ruler the faith that they had in Jesus was not for their salvation or for their salvation from sins but was a faith in the fact that he seemed that he was powerful enough maybe even to defeat Caesar and his armies as we uh, talked about earlier, uh, we saw that people had deep confusion just even in this chapter, in chapter 12, as Christ is indicating that he would have to die on the cross. The people are saying, we have heard from the law that, Christ remains, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Again, there was a deep misunderstanding about the kind of work that Christ had come to do. In both passages, the people abandon Christ simply because he says something difficult. And here in our passage specifically, it's his insistence that he has to die. The people are seeking dignity in the world. They want standing in their society. They want to be respected. They would rather give up on the one doing all sorts of signs and miracles For the sake of staying in good favor with the Pharisees. To be able to go to synagogue peacefully. So they rejected the son of God. Because they didn't want to be rejected by the world. When put in those terms it seems again absurd. Just as it did when we thought about the Israelites. Who walked through the Red Sea and then set up idols once they were safely on the other side. Who could turn their back on God just for the conveniences of this life. Certainly none of us would ever, could ever do something like that, could we? Of course, this is simply how all of us are. This is all of us. Each one of us, apart from faith in Christ, would be just as in love with the world, just as lost in the absurdities that sin creates in us. Apart from Christ's grace to us, our whole value system would be completely upside down. Sin distorts our minds so that we leap to do what is sinful over what is godly. We would reject Christ for any sort of sin. Just like Esau, who traded his birthright for a bowl of red stew, we would be giving up on the best possible thing we could have Which is union and fellowship with God for the sake of satisfaction that doesn't last even for a day. This is what sin does to us. It leads us to fall so easily to temptations, even over little things. We'll tell lies to get out of mildly inconvenient situations. We covet things we don't really need, and when we have them, we don't really care. We'll get angry simply because we enjoy how it feels in the moment. All these things we do to achieve uh, ends that have no value, even in worldly, on, on a worldly level. And so how are we supposed to stand up when we are faced with temptations to do things that do have worldly consequence, that do have value? And so how are we supposed to stand against the pressure of our society coming after us? Without Christ sustaining us, we would fall so easily. And we would fall because the thing our hearts desire the most in our natural, dead selves is whatever is opposed to God. We love evil and hate good. We desire darkness and shun the light. And these aren't truisms. It really does cause people to lose everything. It will cost you everything. And it cost these people everything. It destroyed them. These same people who saw Jesus perform miracles in the wilderness, who saw Jesus cast out demons, who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, turned on him because what he said was difficult. Because they loved the world. They had no room in their hearts for Christ. No room in their heart for God. Now, this passage is speaking to a bit more than just what sin does in general. It is speaking to that, but it's saying more about a particular temptation that we all face, a particular problem that we all have. It's speaking specifically to the sin of worldliness, the love of this world and the glories that we can gain from it. Think again about the absurdity of all of this. Here, God is standing in flesh before them doing all sorts of signs and making all sorts of arguments just to demonstrate to them that the offer of water that will quench all thirst and the food that will satisfy all hunger is real. And they give it up because they don't want to be tossed out of their synagogues. Here they trade the sense of eternity written on their hearts that Ecclesiastes 3 speaks about for the goods of this life. This again is the effect of sin. This is the effect of worldliness. God puts in us a capacity or desire to ponder eternal things, to seek him, but sin drives us to ourselves. To only think about the here and the now. Whatever will satisfy our immediate desires, our immediate itch. Without faith in Christ and the work of his spirit in our hearts, That natural inclination to consider eternal things so quickly is suppressed by the cares, wants, and desires of this life. Sin wrecks our perspective on life. It makes eternal things seem temporary, and the temporary things seem eternal. But what even is this glory that comes from man? Well, we know what it is. It's power, honor, respect, accolades, wealth, comfort. Praise and the promise to be remembered. If we're honest with ourselves, even we as Christians and dwelt by the Spirit feel the tug of these things. Don't we desire to be remembered? Don't we intuitively understand when we read the old stories about an Achilles who trades a long and happy life? but one of obscurity for a short life of glory that will be remembered. Don't we hear that and don't we sympathize with that? Don't we understand that? Wouldn't we want that in some way for ourselves? Don't we get what motivated so many of the so-called great men of history, the Napoleons, the Caesars, to do everything and anything they could for power, for glory? Don't we feel the pull of human glory and accolades don't we want to be loved don't we want to be remembered so we set our hopes on things that don't last we're used to doing this and we all do it this is our default this is our general inclination so when Christ comes offering glory to anyone we all say yes give us that bread that will Keep us from ever hungering again, only don't make me wait for it. Don't make it hard, don't make don't make it hurt. I want the triumph without the trial. I can't wait until heaven or the second coming. I need it now, I want it now. And if you won't give it now, I'll find it somewhere else. That's our mindset, that's the trap that sin leaves us in. But we all know that worldly glory doesn't last. We all know this. If you ask us in our sober moments, of course we're going to say, of, of course, human praise means nothing. Uh, being remembered doesn't really mean anything. You're still dead and buried in the ground. But you don't behave that way. You don't behave like you believe that. The failures of human glory are put so well in Ecclesiastes 2. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. There is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise... As of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. With the reality of death, with the sands of times bearing all of our accomplishments and feats, every remembrance of us, we should ask, why do we care what people think of us? But we do. What does it matter if we get praise from those around us who will be dead and gone almost as quickly as we will be. Why do we strive to make our name for ourselves? We know that all we do, everything we are in this life is going to be forgotten as soon as we're cold. Sin so distorts how we think so powerfully that we're quick to forget eternal things and to seek after those things that we can feel We can touch, we can see, taste, smell, here and now. The problem seems so obvious, yet we fall into it over and over and over again. Like a moth being drawn to open flames, we just can't seem to resist human pride and vanity. And this is part of why Jesus was rejected. To follow Jesus meant giving up on the glory they wanted for themselves. And so when the choice became following the man who just said he was going to die and continuing on with the powerful people of society, the choice seems obvious. But what is the choice? We have a choice put before us. We have it before before us this morning and every morning. Who do we choose? Do we choose the Lord of glory? Or do we choose the glory of men? Now, before you answer that, before any of us can answer that, we must count the cost. It seems obvious to any of us that you would want the glory from God. You want the the, the real glory, the lasting glory. But our text is telling us that we can't be fair-weather friends of God. John says that despite all the signs performed by Christ, the people did not believe. And he says that this happened for the purpose that Isaiah's prophecy might be fulfilled. And what is that prophecy from Isaiah? Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then John said, therefore they could not believe. This brings us to our second point. What is the glory of God? What is this text telling us about the glory of God? I think the first question we have to ask about this text is what is the logical connection supposed to be? How do we get, therefore, they could not believe, from Lord who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We might be able to contrive something that sounds clever, but when you see something like this in the New Testament, and it doesn't make immediate sense to you, it's okay to ask, what is the author doing? Don't just gloss over it and keep reading. Usually, when uh, author in the New Testament especially, quotes a text, he has a whole passage in mind. He's not giving you the whole argument. He's wanting you to go back to the text that he's alluding to. He expects you to know it. Now, luckily for us, this is a very familiar passage. This is, of course, from Isaiah 53, which goes on to say, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we were healed. Now, we may be tempted to take this as the simple answer. So the people rejected Jesus because Jesus, of course, had to suffer. He had to die. God would not allow them to believe in order for his purposes to be fulfilled. We might also reach to some other explanation we might say well they couldn't believe because of original sin of course these are all true but that's not John's primary point John is saying something more about the contrast between our glory and God's whereas our glory seeks power and prestige God's glory is displayed in one who is despised and esteemed not God's strength is perfected in our weakness as Paul says It's not just that suffering was necessary for for God's ends to be achieved, but that suffering is essential to how God displays his glory. He delights to show his power in weak people, to use that which we would hide our faces from, as Isaiah says, to reveal himself. Think about Abraham, a man well past his prime, with a wife who was barren and far too old to ever have any hope of having children, This man was often a coward and regularly lacked faith in God. Yet God made him the father of all who believe. Think of Moses, a man who had to flee from Egypt as a murderer, a man who was a poor speaker, a man who was often doubted and often as impatient as the people he was leading. Yet God made this man the great lawgiver. And he was the great type of Christ who serves God's people as a mediator. As a prophet, priest, and king to all Israel. It was through him that God performed so many miracles. It was through him that he led his people to safety. God has always chosen the weak things of this world to show his glory. That's practically what the whole Old Testament is about. He always uses difficulty and suffering to show his goodness to the world. And Jesus, of course, is the greatest example of this. Just before a passage, Jesus talks about how he must be lifted up from the earth. Jesus used similar language back in chapter 8, saying, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Here, lifting up may seem to be about Christ being glorified. But both in this passage and in the passage uh, in John 12, what he's really speaking about is his death. He's referring to his death as that glorious proof that shows he is from God. And he speaks of his death as the means by which he will draw all people to himself. The cross is what draws people. The cross is where he is lifted up and glorified. The cross makes sense of why God's Messiah is both suffering and also glorified, both humiliated and exalted, both brought low and raised up. (coughs) Then John turns to Isaiah 6, and we read, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. There's many things we could say about this passage, but... The point that John is raising with it is um, a bit different than we might expect. But first note right after this, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who is he? Whose glory did he see? If you look, for the last referent in the text is Christ. John is claiming here very clearly that the one that Isaiah saw in the courtroom in chapter 6 of that book was none other than Jesus enthroned in glory. It is Jesus that he saw when he wrote, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of the majesty of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Here the glory of Christ is fully on display we see that it's Christ who directs the hearts of men. He blinds the eyes, hardens their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts in turn. It is Christ who both deadens and makes alive. He is the King of glory. This same Jesus, the same Lord of hosts, King of kings, is the one who displays himself by suffering. It is he who the one enthroned who died on our behalf. With these two passages, John is showing us what the glory of God means. He first draws our attention to the suffering of Christ, making a clear connection to the prophecy regarding the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 with Jesus. And then he turns to Isaiah 6 and quotes where Jesus is enthroned in glory, where he is lifted up, not on a cross, but on a throne. These two ideas hang together inseparably. You can't separate them when you try to understand the glory of God. Jesus suffers to win his people to himself. His suffering establishes the very glory which we all desire. Without suffering, there is no glory. So as Paul says, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer, provided we suffer, Suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We don't get one or the other of the Isaiah passages. We get both. We get the same lot as the suffering Messiah and the same lot as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords enthroned in glory. Beloved, meditate on this idea. Our being joined to Christ means that we share in his suffering and glory. We've been spared the suffering of hell, yes, but we're not spared from that suffering in order to live comfortable, easy, glorified lives. We are delivered from sin and death to be united to Christ, and that union brings with it new sorts of sufferings. Not the suffering of punishment for sins, but the suffering of bearing the cross of Christ. We suffer because we have an identity With Jesus. An identity that, as Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are now the poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hungry for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted, reviled, and a light to the world, a city on a hill. All of these things which Jesus said belong to those who are blessed. We all want those blessings. We all want want the kingdom of heaven. We all want to be comforted. We all want to inherit the earth. We want to be satisfied. We want mercy. We want to see God. We want to be called sons of God. But do we desire the suffering that comes with it? Can we desire the suffering that comes with it? Is that something that our human nature is ever inclined to? Can we ever look on that suffering servant who had no form of majesty that we would look at him and no beauty that we would desire him, and see in that wretched man, the very king of glory, enthroned in heaven? Again, the temptation here is obvious. We all want the struggle, but we all want the reward without the struggle. We want to be seated with Christ, but we certainly don't want to be crucified with him. So you can't want this. There's nothing that makes you want to suffer. Nothing in you. Nothing in you that wants to be persecuted. Nothing in you that wants to be mistreated in any way. It's impossible for you. This glory is the exact opposite of anything you could ever want or desire or hope for. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to die horribly even for what they believe in. And nobody wants to die to themselves, not truly, to kill that sinful self that still hangs on in each each and every one of us. We not only lack the strength to do this, but we can't even muster up the desire to try. And this is why no one could believe in Christ. Because it's impossible for us. It was impossible for them just as it is for you and I. But this is the work of God. This is the work of God in you. He exchanges your heart for hearts that desire him. He renews your minds. Strengthens your bodies. Gives you words to say, actions to do. He guides your steps and leads you into the image of his son day by day more and more he teaches us to love him to earnestly desire the death that brings life to want glory which to our former selves is no glory at all and this is the grace of christ this is the grace of god to you this is the good news That we go from being like the Apostle Paul, who had zeal for all sorts of glory, which he thought was godly, who persecuted God's people, but was given eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to know. And so he was healed. It was Paul whom Jesus called his chosen instrument, whom our Lord said he would show him how much he must suffer for my name. This is not a threat or an ominous thing. It's rather the greatest blessing anyone could receive. That he would be made to suffer. And that he, like us, and every Christian, would experience the hardship of this life. That we would get to bear our cross and follow Christ to death. Only to be raised with him and glorified with him. Beloved, the Christian life is hard. The Christian life promises nothing but difficulty and pain, but it promises comfort and joy as well, but only to those who suffer. So when we find ourselves constantly attacked by our society, by our culture, when we fear for our children, our spouses, our families, when we feel so constantly beset by sin and feel that we're making so little progress in our walk with Christ more plagued by sickness, by doubt, by pain, by grief. Know that you suffer all these things as one bought by Christ. Know that your suffering is not in vain, but that you belong to him who is ruler of all, who can forgive your sins. He's your shepherd, your elder brother, your great bridegroom, your physician, healer and comforter. All that you suffer for his sake will lead you to a greater knowledge of him, to a greater sanctification, and ultimately to a greater glorification. As you will indeed be seated with him in heavenly places if you put your trust in him. So now I hope the choice is clear. Will you today choose the glories of this life and die? Or having heard the cost the following Christ, will you trust in him and live? He will be yours if you believe in him. And you will suffer, but the loss is only the things of this world. So, beloved, this day and every day, take up your cross and follow him.